Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 242, Mapping Lunar Ice. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. As we continue to talk about returning humans to the moon as part of NASA's Artemis missions, it's essential to gather as much data about the lunar surface ahead of the boot prints. We know that there is water ice on the moon, and we have a rough idea of where it is. But there's one experiment coming up on the Artemis 1 mission that's going to give us an even better understanding. On this episode, we're talking about a shoebox-sized satellite that will help us understand and even map water ice on the moon. To explain a little more about Lunar Ice Cube, the name of the mission, we have previous principal investigator Dr. Pamela Clark, director of Moorhead State's Star Theater and a space systems engineering instructor at Moorhead State University, and we have Cliff Brambora, Birch's lead engineer from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Yes, we get into what Birch's is. So let's get right into it. Enjoy. Pamela and Cliff, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to talk about Lunar Ice Cube. Yes, thank you. It's very nice to have this opportunity. Very good to have you both. We're talking the science. We're talking some of the hardware that's on this awesome um, uh, experiment called Lunar Ice Cubes. I wanted to start off with just figuring out what this thing is. Uh, we've been diving into a couple of the payloads of a couple of the experiments that are on uh, SLS, uh, and this this one's pretty cool. So let's just let's just start off with right off the bat, Pamela. I'll start with you uh, to help us to understand what is Lunar Ice Cubes. What is this experiment? So Lunar Ice Cube is a 6U CubeSat mission with a um, infrared spectrometer based on um, uh, the OBIRS instrument, but a much smaller version of it, which has the capability of measuring um, infrared reflectance from about 1 to 4 microns, and therefore... Um, that is an area that contains absorption features associated with water in various forms and components of water like hydroxyl. So we're hoping to see the variation in absorptions due to water in the reflectance spectrum from 1 to 4 microns as a function of time of day. And the way we do that is as a re the, the uh, spacecraft is put into a repeating pattern where it will go back and look at the same area on the surface at different times of day over the course of several months. And therefore, we'll be able to look at the presence of water on the surface as a function of time of day. And that will help us to understand water distribution on the moon. That is a big deal. Of course, let's let's back up for a, even more than that. Um, you're talking about the fact that there is water on the moon. That sounds like a pretty big deal. Can you tell us about um, just what we know so far and then what Lunar Ice Cube is is trying to fill in the gaps for? Right. Well, you know, the up until maybe just over 10 years ago, folks really didn't think that there was much water on the moon. But then there were several missions that kind of serendipitously uh, looked at water, saw some feature associated with water as flybys. And then, of course, um, Chandrayaan M3 uh, took a snapshot which looked at uh, what could be those at those features, absorption features. Um, and it, it seemed likely, in fact, and it was it seems to be correlated with um the amount of illumination and thermal conditions on the lunar surface. And um, the uh, that and um, combining that information with other information we got from LRO, for example, which is the Goddard mission, um, and looking at uh, what the temperature would be, where there could be places, where there could be cold traps for water, um, got people thinking about the possibility of water below the surface as well as on the surface. And, of course, what we're looking for and why it's so important and why AES um, sponsored this mission, Lunar Ice Cube, was to see if we could help to get a handle on where we would look for water, which we could use as a resource on the moon, not only in terms of understanding, and it's, it's good to know from a scientific standpoint in terms of the role water may have played 
in the origin of the moon, lunar regolith, and other small bodies in the solar system, but also to know where there could be water deposits that could be resources that could be useful for uh, utilization on the moon by uh, human crews. Awesome. Pamela, you're talking about the science of, of water on the moon, and of course, you're trying to look for it. Um, you, you mentioned LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. There's instruments on there that are looking at the surface of the moon. But what's interesting about this particular mission, uh, Lunar Ice Cube, is is the instruments that are going to um, that are going to look for the things that you and your science team are looking for. So, Cliff, we'll go over to you for a second. What instruments are on Lunar Ice Cube that's going to help us to understand the the presence of water on the lunar surface? Sure, uh, good question. Um, so there is only one primary uh, scientific instrument on Lunar Ice Cube, and it is the Burgess instrument. Everything else on the spacecraft is, is all about the spacecraft being able to exist and provide power and be able to point in the right directions. Mm. So um, the Burgess uh, is the instrument that we developed at Goddard Space Flight Center, and um, Moorhead University did, did the spacecraft, the Lunar Ice Cube spacecraft. Um, so uh, Birches, as Pam mentioned, is a, is a miniaturized uh, approximation of the um, Ovier's instrument, which was flown on OSIRIS-REx, which is a sample return mission that went out to this asteroid called Bennu, and it's on its way back with its little sample. Pretty cool. Um, so we got um, one of the detectors, one of the infrared detectors that, that um, was flown on um, Ovier's. There were several other candidate flight spares and we were able to get our hands on one of those spares and uh, incorporate that into this much smaller version of this instrument um so so um so Burgess is the is the instrument that that we're using to uh look at the the, the water features in the in the infrared um emissions from the moon in that one to four micron range that pam talked about and it's the only um instrument on board this uh, CubeSat. And it is a CubeSat, which is very important to note because that's a, a lower cost, higher risk way of getting science out there. And we're very happy to be involved in that. Very cool. So so t let's let's explore um, the OSIRIS-REx for a bit. This was, uh, this was a mission that went out, out to like an, an asteroid, like you were saying. And of course, there was this instrument on board that did something and the asteroid that was very interesting for what you're trying to accomplish here. Can you talk about the Osiris Rex mission and what this um, and what this infrared spectrometer did um, that that could be translated to this mission? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so there were four instruments on Osiris Rex, and okay. um, Ovier's was one of them. And Ovier's primary re reason to exist is to um, survey the surface of Bennu from an infrared perspective in that same one to four micron range and mm. determine um, an, an area of interest. For them to take the sample that's really its sole purpose is to stare at the survey the, the the surface of Bennu and and based on the spectral emissions pick out an area that looked like the most fertile useful hunk of Bennu that we could bring back to the earth and analyze so it's its existence was just that and um, once it did that job it was pretty much done said well this is the spot and maybe this is the backup spot and then you guys need to go get that sample so that's what that's what Ovier's was all about um, and, and just as an example of size, um, you know, Ovier's was 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 probably about um, a foot and a half by by two and a half feet by um, maybe a foot tall, and um, Birch's by comparison is about the size of a large Kleenex box, so it's much smaller. Awesome. Well, let, let's let's continue. Let's continue this uh, discussion about Lunar Ice Cube. Let's talk about the science. Let's talk about the the engineering process to miniaturize and, and create um, this this Birch's instrument. I want to I want to fully explore what it took uh, to get this mission together. Uh, so, Pamela, let's start with just, um, you know, the fact of, of working together, because uh, you you are um, at the Moorhead State University, and of course you had to come up. We're we're collaborating together with uh, NASA. How did this all come together? The the, uh, the universities and uh, space agencies all coming together to say, hey, let's let's. Uh, I got this great idea about ex uh, ways that we can explore water ice on on the lunar surface. Um, what was how how did this all come together? So. Um... I uh, started an advanced concept group at Goddard Space Flight Center when I was there, put together a team of folks uh, from different engineering disciplines, 
um, to look at the possibility of creating a 6U-contained uh, spacecraft that could support an infrared spectrometer, which, by the way, is quite challenging because it also requires a, a cryo-cooler, um, and that takes power. And there's that 6U is not very much space, and it's particularly challenging from a thermal standpoint because, you know, getting rid of waste heat can be very challenging, and the moon is a thermally challenging environment. So one of the first things I did was to include thermal engineer as part of the team, and we looked at this concept for at least a couple of years, and I had already um, propo done proposals with Ben Malfris at Morehead State University for CubeSat missions, mostly um, Earth orbiting. And so when an opportunity came along through the Next Step program, um, sponsored by AES at NASA, to propose to do missions that could do one of several things. One was to develop instrumentation that could basically look for water on the moon. And so we did that, plus we're, we're basically using a new um, CubeSat propulsion system. And um, the Moorhead State University folks already had worked on the collaborative project with the BUSEC people who developed our propulsion system. And um, in addition to that, um, after the mission was selected, I moved to JPL, worked at JPL for about six years, and continued to be science PI while I was at JPL, before I moved to Moorhead State University. So at JPL, I mean, we also had collaborations with the Deep Space Network folks. I mean, one of the things you may not know about Moorhead State University is that is the only uh, non-government official DSN station, Station 17, here at Moorhead. And we hmm. will be using that, among other stations, um, when we get um, when we do uplinks and downlinks from the spacecraft during the during the mission. Um, so. There's a number. It is challenging to do a number of uh, to have a number of collaborators that are all over the country. Fortunately for us, um, when during the shutdown, we had actually the Space Science Center was actually open and continued to be able to work on the spacecraft. Um, so that you know that's a that that's not unusual for CubeSat teams. I know something about the other Artemis uh, deployees. You know, all these uh, CubeSats will be deployed. And uh, many of them are multi, you know, multi-institutional um, teams. And in fact, we just had a, a summit to look at some of the lessons learned from from all the various missions, and they're about to try to publish a paper on that. But um, yeah, so we, you know, we learned a lot. Um, 6U is a very challenging size. I think if we were, had to do this again, most of us would go to 12U. 6U is small, not a lot of surface area to put all the stuff we need. Um, getting all the, you know, getting enough surface area for the power system, um, being able to deal with the um, thermal environment and, and involving getting rid of waste heat. And we have some pretty, you know, um, we have some um, subsystems on there that require a lot of power. The propulsion system does, the communication system does. And when we turn the crowd cooler on, you know, we need to also, um, you know, we need that, that also requires some power too. So I'll let Cliff talk a little bit more about the challenges of uh, trying to keep everything going sufficiently and um, being able to take the measurements. And we'll also be doing some in-flight calibration, so that'll also be an interesting challenge to be able to find time when that can be done, when we're not, when the pulse system isn't on and we're not tracking with the communication system. So it's, you know, CubeSat um, missions especially the first generation in deep space, are really, really challenging and require a tremendous amount of cleverness to make them work. So we'll be learning a lot when we're, when we're operational, when we actually get to deploy from Artemis as well. But we've learned a lot, you know, lessons learned in terms of what we've done so far, too. Yeah, lots, lots, lots of challenges. You're, you're teeing Cliff up here very nicely to, 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 to dive into that. So, let, so let's go right to it, Cliff. Um, Pamela was m mentioning a number of engineering challenges. You have cooling challenges, you have size challenges, you have power challenges. Um, how did you and your team start really tackling some of these? Presented this uh, this really big ask. Hey, we want to fit this this fancy science instrument with all these power constraints, and it's going to generate a lot of heat, and we want to make it into a, a tiny six U size um, uh, CubeSat. How'd you how'd you tackle that? Great question, and thanks, Pam. You're absolutely right. Um, and one thing that that most people don't necessarily realize when they go into this type of of activity is that that even though this is a small six U sized spacecraft, it really has all the traditional difficult things of a larger spacecraft: power, mm -hmm. communication, thermal, uh, 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 you know, 
attitude, control, all these different systems, star trackers, everything exists in the same. It's just smaller. So, so it, it's hard, even though it's, and it becomes even harder because it's smaller. So, so we had to, we had to miniaturize this Ovir's instrument into a, a much smaller size. And, and we, we started with the, 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 the optic nerve of this instrument is this, this, uh, Teledyne um, detector that we we, we got a, a spare from the Ovirs program to use, and it's an infrared detector, and it, it wants to be cold to, to do what it needs to do in order for it to see in that one to four micron area of wavelength that, that we care about. It, it really needs to be cold, so we had to we had to put a, a actively cool it with with a what's called a cryo cooler. It's like a picture an air conditioner, if you will, on in space. It, it doesn't work the same, obviously, but it, it's designed to <laughs> Bring heat out of that detector and get it cold. So, so that detector on, on Ovirs, it was running um, at, 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 at uh, probably somewhere in the in the 95 Kelvin range, and that's a great temperature for that detector to really work well. And and we uh, we struggled a lot with the thermal on this this program, getting that detector as cold as we can, and and still be able to get rid of all the waste heat in this small environment was very, very difficult. If I have to pick one thing that was the hardest, I would say it was the thermal aspects of this design. Um, so so we um, we had to design with, with a lot of input from a th- our thermal engineering uh, folks at Goddard and also at um, Moorhead to, to figure out how we're gonna get rid of all this heat. So every, every, every surface on this six-sided, you know, rectangular spacecraft, um, rectangular volume spacecraft is a radiator it, it's designed to, to get rid of heat um, so so we had to come up with ways to 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 bring that thermal energy to different surfaces of the spacecraft to get rid of the heat otherwise we couldn't get cold enough so so thermal was was the biggest challenge um, and then uh, finding very um, uh, viable ways to to get the heat out in mostly in a, a conductive way Meaning, meaning, you know, it's it's conducting through a surface. The heat energy is flowing through metal, for the most part. Um, and then um, we also took uh, advantage of what we call radiative cooling, whereas it's the same reason you're, you're if you have a car and it's black, it gets hot in the sun because because it, it, it the energy from the sun is absorbed. So if you if you take two two boxes on a spacecraft and you you make them black. I'll just say black for simplicity's sake, um, that, that they're going to talk to each other thermally, and one will help cool the other. So we took advantage of that, too. And, 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 and also an expeditious use of, of an opposite type of scenario where you put a, a, a thermal reflective material in between two things because one thing's hot and one thing's cold, and you want to shield it. It's like an insulator. So we, so we used uh, between radiative cooling and conductive cooling and and um, and um, uh, isolating uh, insulative type components, we were able to come up with a system that we think will will have the detector and the internals of the instrument cold enough to be to be of value for us. And we saw this in our thermal vac testing. It's one of the tests you do to spacecraft systems. You should put it into a thermal vac chamber, and it simulates the conditions of space, and that it sucks all the atmosphere out. So you have a vacuum. And then, and then when once the vacuum is gone, you no longer have convection. If you picture a convection oven, and in, mm. in your house, it uses hot air circulating around the food item to help cook it. In space, there's no convection, no air. You can't talk. You can't breathe. Obviously, so this 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 other way of getting heat in or out of something is gone. So so thermal vac lets us test in in a very space-like scenario. And during those tests, we did about a year ago. We did see that we were able to get the detector down to um, about 128 Kelvin, and and see some um, actual um, uh, results that we we think are uh, indicated that the instrument was working correctly. Um, thermal is definitely a challenge. Um, one of the other things I'll mention is the, the when we're when we're orbiting the moon, the reflected sun from the moon, it's called albedo energy, is is not trivial. That the, the 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 surface of the moon is hot when it's on when it's being hit by the sun, and and that energy reflects up and, and hits us. So we we actually you know one of the, the reasons we get warm is not only because the the sun hitting us directly, but it's also from the reflected energy coming up from the bottom. 
Um, so that's primarily my long-winded point is that thermal for this little instrument on this little spacecraft in this particular environment was, was probably our biggest challenge. Um, after that, mass was a, was, a, was a bogey that we had to worry about, and we, we did some tricks to lighten up things, use some magnesium uh, components here and there for certain chassis to lighten things up, and um, that was successful. Um, and then um, power, of course, we wanted to keep the power as low as we could, and um, this instrument, burn, when it's on full tilt, burns about 16 watts, and uh, the whole power budget for the whole spacecraft is a little just shy of 100 watts. So you can imagine when we're running, we're we're 20 percent of the power bill. You know that that's that's not trivial. So um, anyway, um, I did say a lot there. I hope I answered your question appropriately. You did very very thoroughly too. Um, we're, we're, you're, we're exploring all the challenges with the, with the thermal constraints. Really, I want to I want to pitch over to Pamela to sort of um, add some context to. There, from the you know, Cliff was mentioning a lot of engineering challenges to to make this work. Um, but I don't think we've we've explored too much as to um, what we're trying to do. I think from a high level, we understand we're trying to map the moon for for uh, map the lunar surface um, uh, for uh, the presence of water water ices. Um, but I want to understand sort of how we're going to do that from the tactical perspective of flying around the moon and, and using this instrument, calibrating it, really the, the mission operations side. Uh, how is this going to work? Once you're deployed from the from the SLS, what happens to actually execute the mission? So first of all, we have to go on a low energy trajectory, which mm -hmm. will involve uh, traversing through space on a low energy trajectory for months on end before we get into a position to get into lunar capture. And once we're captured, we'll do what's called periapsis lowering to get into a final science orbit. And along that path, we'll actually be doing some in-flight calibration, looking at the moon and perhaps several other targets to be able to uh, verify the um, spectral and uh, radiometric performance of the detector. Then we'll get into a lunar orbit, a lunar orbit that will have a repeat pattern that will allow us to go over the same real estate on the lunar surface at several times of day. And the reason we need to do that is because we need to come up with a, a better a better model of water physics. Why is that? Well, because during when it gets cold on the moon, um, water uh, molecules get cold trapped. Hydroxyl, which is a component made from interaction of, uh, of solar protons with water molecules, um, also basically stick, uh, get absorbed on um, regular particles. And uh, where, do, where do they end up? How much is there? How much is on the surface? Where specifically do they end up? So what we're looking at is a, a resolution of about kilometers, tens of kilometers, uh, maybe 20, 30 kilometers, which is kind of intermediate between what the um, neutron spectrometer data has told us about water on the moon over relatively large areas, and what we can get from LRO pictures combined with the diviner data on temperature that give us the sense of what local cold traps could be. So the question is, can we find a terrain which has enough local cold traps where there are shadows, for, especially as we go further north or south at higher latitudes, where the shadows persist for longer? And there's been some work now that's indicated that even after the shadows um, towards the middle of the day aren't there, the, the uh, areas still continue to trap, trap some water. So how persistent are these? How long do they last? Um, how much of a particular part of the terrain could be covered with these cold traps. And that will imply, although we're looking at surface data, it is true, that will imply the possibility of water um, in the, in, basically below the surface as well. Now, you know, there are two other missions that are flying at the same time that are going to look at the South Pole, particularly mm. look at the lunar flashlight. We'll look for the presence of surface ice at the South Pole and then Luna map which we'll look for at, at higher resolution because very close to the, to the, to the surface. Um, we'll, we'll look at water, to uh, protons basically, to a depth of a meter, which will imply the presence of water. And that'll kind of tie in in terms of, we'll see what's going on at the poles with actual ice. But understanding the water cycle as a whole, and also uh, and basically the, the origin of water, is it coming from the interior? Is it strictly coming, has, has it come from, impact of um, comets or uh, meteorites with, with that contain um, that, that contain volatiles. Um, so, you know, we don't 
This will help us to get a much better handle on the water model, and that'll help to explain the water at the poles as well. All this is, you know, it's it's nice to have a mission that's actually very practical and also gives you a, can give a lot of scientific insight, and and I think Lunar Ice Cube does. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, from what you're saying, Pamela, is it's it's one of many instruments. Of course, we have LRO there as well um, um, with its own instruments that are continuing continually mapping. You mentioned a couple of others, lunar flashlights, and and all, and on some of these others. So it's really contributing to the broader picture. Right, um, and lunar. Lunar flashlight is um, has a basically is a laser induced and then measured with a detector back at the the um, spacecraft and they're they're all three different instruments and the lunar map is a neutron spectrometer so three different mm-hmm. instruments and that's complementary and helps to constrain models too when you have different kinds of data from different sources. So, as a scientist, uh, when you're looking at these models, what what is the hope? You have all these you have all these instruments looking at the different pieces of of mapping the lunar surface, and so when it all comes together, what's what's the idea here? You have a better you you mentioned a better understanding of water ice and its movement over time. What what is what does that mean? What is that helping you to explore? Well, it's a four dimensional understanding of water: how persistent it is, how much there is. It'll give us some insight uh-huh. into the origin. Is it interior? Is it outgassing? Is it exterior? Is there actual production of water going on on the surface? And all of these pieces of information, when combined, will give us a much more comprehensive model of water and, by implication, other volatiles. Um, and that will help us understand where we should look for water, where we should send those rovers to drill for water, um, how much we might hope to find is what we see on the surface. An, an indicator is it a signature for what we might see underneath. Um, and all these things will help us if we want to actually see water as a resource. These are the kinds of reconnaissance kinds of data that you need to have to be able to know where you want to put your you know, equipment to actually try to extract resources. Understand. Yeah, you're talking about, yeah, we're doing all the work ahead of time preparing for those Artemis missions uh, on when we're going to be walking on the surface. We know where some of the most the more interesting places are. And then the more that we can characterize it ahead of time, um, it's, it sounds like you're talking about drilling and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it, we can we could have a better understanding of what we need, what uh, other hardware and stuff we need to develop and, and what instruments we need uh, when, once we're there. Uh, because we've done all the homework ahead of time, we've we've characterized uh, the surface with all of these different instruments. Yeah, where we particularly where we need to go, and you know that you, you, we'd like to be you know select sites where we had a higher likelihood of actually mm-hmm. finding something and doing it faster, so that you know you don't have to expend uh, as invest as much in in looking around. So these are all things that help to constrain a problem. That you know, basically a way to get an understanding of where there could potentially be um, water reserves, or it would be in the form of ice. You know, when I say water, you know, please understand I'm, I include ice, right. I include water in all forms, H2O, <laughs> right. and also right, right, hyd- right. hydroxyl, which is a component of water. Mm-hmm. And if I might add, um, I think you know ultimately there are so many extremely exciting things that can come from this mission and the scrutiny of the moon. And, um, uh, you know, it, 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 in my view and what I've understand to be the, the, one of the future goals is to actually, you know, have a, a, a presence on the moon where we can perhaps, uh, you know, harness that water and it would have to, I think for survival. And then the moon could become, like a launching point for it's very sci-fi sounding for Mars or other areas. So, so, you know, I, I know Pam has spoken very excitedly about this type of thing of having a presence on the moon to me in the past. Mm-hmm. We've had many conversations about it. And this, this to me is that these are the baby steps you need to take to, to, to convince the people on the planet earth that, that this can be done. And, um, you know, you need water in from water, you can make fuel, you can get hydrogen, you can, you can do a lot of really interesting things. That's a long talk, game, if I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Talking to you guys and talking to a lot of a lot of folks, I think I think you know there's a lot of cool cool uh, you know grand ideas, and, and I love that. I found just from talking to a lot of um, fo- folks like yourself that uh, when, whenever we're trying to think about some interesting concept, right? So so we'll take we'll take Lunar Ice Cube for for example. 
Um, ju just the idea of we have a we have a significant engineering challenge, and so we are going to uh, we not only do we have to explore the lunar surface and we have to map it using these uh, infrared cameras uh, or infrared infrared spectrometers. Um, we have to we have all of these engineering constraints with with thermal and with um, and with uh, uh, the the size that we were talking about the power constraints those sorts of things um, and we have to tackle just that uh, we have to tackle all of these different things and come up with uh, in, uh, Cliff you expressed how creative you and your team had to be to solve these issues I think even just I mean you, you're contributing to something so much bigger um, and and when you actually tackle these you're taking such a significant step and and coming up with creative solutions to get us there and just it's really just the fact too that every step along the way contributes so so much more significantly than you would have thought right you think okay first at high level we have to we have to map the lunar surface with with this infrared spectrometer uh and, and we have to discover water ice okay cool we breeze right past it but really if we focus in on it look at all the challenges that we had to solve just in this step um, and so, so really, Cliff, I'm, 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 this is props to you and your team, and to Pamela as well, really for, for, for tackling some of these significant issues and just noting that that of of what it takes just to accomplish a mission like this, right? You're talking about grander ideas, but but it's really um, is what you, what you and your team have contributed is is quite significant. Well, th thank you. Uh, I appreciate it, and you know, it's been a very large team, um, multi-institution effort, and and I have to admit this this has been just one of the most satisfying cooperative um, uh, activities of my career. To be honest, I mean, working on such an exciting program and working with Pam and uh, in, 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 in Moorhead and the the excellent leadership and everything that's been going on. The engineering was also fantastic at Moorhead. And you know this whole system is very complicated, and and I, I I also appreciate the support we've received from our headquarters folks. Uh, Andres Martins is um, part of the AES crew there, and he's just been a stalwart supporter of our our um, uh, ever increasing scope of things we wanted to do. And he had to pull the reins back a few times, but you know for a CubeSat mm -hmm. we. We did a lot of iterative engineering here. We did a lot of upfront testing. Granted, we did it as cheaply as possible and as quickly as possible. But but we we you know any notion that you can just start from a clean piece of paper and go right to flight is is fraught with risk. You really need to take baby steps. You need to iterate. You need to learn. We we had to redesign the entire thermal system for how this instrument is is cooled about. Uh, two years before we went into Thermovac, there was a big right turn in our understanding of how this was going to work, and we had to we had to pivot with that um, and and come up with solutions, and we did, and um, it was really um, it was actually it was fun, it was exciting to, to to have to see these challenges and come up with a solution in a in a quick amount of time. So very innovative thinking from all sides, and uh, you know it was really um, it's very exciting. Yeah. I, you know, I'd also like to add, um, if I can, um, that this is a first-generation, using a first-generation CubeSat. You know, CubeSat's basically with the idea in mind of a rapid development, streamlined, um, you know, standardized, um, basically, container um, with relatively small number of options for subsystems, which was developed for low-Earth orbit. And... Um, the difference with a deep space CubeSat, I mean, one of the differences is, well, it's a far more challenging environment, for one thing, but in addition to that, you have to have all the active control systems you do on a regular deep space spacecraft. You can't take advantage of being in orbit around the Earth with a magnetic field using magneto torquers to control your alignment, for example, among other things. Mm -hmm. um, so getting this to work and also understand that, I mean, the people who did the building, a lot of the building of the spacecraft were students. So we're giving students first-hand, hands-on experience um, using a marrying a CubeSat model um, with a, you know, basically aerospace engineering model. And you need to be able to, you need to find where that sweet spot is to combine both of those approaches so that in the future, and basically based on lessons learned from, what, 13 different selected projects that were supposed to be flying on Artemis, um, that will actually have a, a good place to stand for the next round. And, you know, we were all basically mm -hmm. operating in parallel. So that meant that sometimes we were independently reinventing the wheel. 
Sometimes we were having some of the same issues, sometimes different ones. Um, the, there are certain ones like thermal that pop up consistently. But um, I think that um, we hope that we can incorporate these lessons learned and make the next round, um, you know, basically uh, easier go. But there'll still be challenges. Just remember, I look at this as like NASA's first decade when, you know, NASA <laughs> was building spacecraft for the first time and they didn't even give anything a name until it actually got some data back from space. And they just, wow. if they had a failure, they just made a little tweak and sent up something else and flew it, you know, tried again. And at the end of that decade, going from maybe, you know, a less than 50% success rate, we were at amazing 100% success with Saturn V. Amazing. Well, so this is a whole, this is, again, this CubeSats offer a lot of opportunity to send little fleets of standardized spacecraft all over the solar system and a lot, get a lot more systematic data on the things that are the things that are going on in three dimensions and four dimensions over time. Incredible. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and I really um, think it's great how Moorhead University has involved students. And, it, and, it's, and as Pam said, it's, it's not only in the design and manufacturing and, and engineering complexities of making lunar ice cube a reality, but also on the ground system side. In, Moorhead University is uh, uh, has an incredible, you know, uh, uh, communication capability at, that that contributes to how we get the data down and how we command the spacecraft. They 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 actually have the ground system for this um, set up there, and 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 that that's huge, and that's a big part of their aerospace program. So it's it's been it's been. Yeah, I'm so glad Pam brought it up that the you know the. The, the mentorship, the, the the seating of all these minds of, of people studying this is, is just invaluable. This is terrific. So, and we, we do it at NASA too, of course. But I, I have to admit, you know, I've, I've worked with many different institutions over the years, and uh, I'm very impressed with Moorhead's uh, aerospace uh, program and how they bring their students in to help. And it's also a very affordable thing to do too, as you imagine. Because students don't cost as much as senior engineers, of course. So it's it's really a win-win. Win-win. I mean, you get a lot of a lot of different experiences. You get a lot of eyes on it. Very truly collaborative, and then and then it ultimately all comes together. Uh, Pamela, you were you were mentioning a couple of uh, you know you obviously are thinking about some of these challenges, and we went over them a lot a lot today. But um, just when you look at the the mission itself, we talked about what it's going to be doing. Um, I, I think where, where we can get some clarity is uh, how long the mission is supposed to be going on. Obviously, you have these challenges that you're working, um, but is is the ultimate goal to map the entire lunar surface, for example? And it sounds like you're taking multiple passes over the same areas, uh, as you mentioned, to, to calibrate and stuff. But is the goal... Is the goal to thoroughly map the the entire surface, and so so what does that mean for um for the operations for the continued operations of overseeing this payload and to uh, to make sure you're getting the data that you want? What is really what I'm trying to get at is what is mission success for you? So actually, it does not map the entire lunar surface. Um, we hope to be able to go back over to the same real estate once a lunar cycle, and I think that. If we do this for several months, we might get something like 10 or 20% of the lunar surface. Uh, we will pre preferentially, we're basically coming up from crossing the Terminator at the South Pole to start taking measurements. We'll start on the earlier times of day, and that's actually when we're apt to see the most water as a function of time of day. And, um, you know, we, so the, the, we're talking about a nominal six month mission once we arrive in our final lunar orbit. It'll take hmm. probably two or three months to periapsis lower from initial lunar, lunar capture, in which we might occasionally take some data. And then before that, we'll be doing a low-energy trajectory. And the length of that low-energy trajectory will depend greatly on the date which we launch. Um, it, it varies considerably from um, day to day and week to week in terms of what that will be exactly you know, where, where we'll end up, what Lagrange points will we'll swing around, um, what, how we'll see the Earth and the Moon on the way out there, how far away we'll be from the Earth even. So, you know, we're talking about something that could vary from several months to nine months in, in duration. So we're hoping basically based on the 
what we can, you know, our our our, our um, likely um, lifetime survivability of parts. That we're talking about a mission that we can probably do within under two years, a year and a half, nominally, and um, that should be okay for, you know, the radiation hardness of the parts that we have on board, for example. Um, and so that's what, and what what we will do then um, when we initially proposed, um, we were not required to deliver data to a public archive. Um, and then, a year or two after we started, we were required to deliver data to a public archive. And, you know, frankly, it's just as well because we'd like the data to be used. But that certainly involves the kind of data production and management that's beyond the original scope of the mission. So we had to ask for some additional resources. And so our plan basically is to deliver the uh, raw data, what's called level zero data, to an archive as soon as possible as we take the data. It'll be thoroughly There'll be a lot of metadata to go with it to describe exactly what the data is, what the important information on housekeeping associated with the instrument. And then over a period of time after the mission, as we'll, we'll do the correction and calibration, and that will definitely involve folks at Goddard to um, to, to do that based on the ways that the OVIRS, uh, the, the treatment of the OVIRS data with some additional steps um, for this particular instrument in orbit around the moon. And then from that, um, we will uh, produce um, a look at the relative variation in absorption features for the areas on the moon that we've covered as a function of time of day and latitude. And those should be made publicly available. The planetary data system, which is the public archive for planetary data, has agreed to come up with a a model which is a little easier and less expensive for extremely cost cap missions to, to deal with, and we'll be you'll, we'll be using that to, um, to to capture the data and make it available in, in an archive, which will be indefinitely available to the public. That's something that if you don't do, then you know there's no way that an institution can make a commitment to and you know in, in uh, basically forever maintaining a, an archive. But it will be at the planetary data system. One of the things Long. I'd, I'd like to add to that, if, if I might, is 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 that we, as a as one of the you know originally planned thirteen um, hitchhikers, if you will, on this really impressive mission, um, we are literally the tail wagging the dog. I mean, we what what is important to our little CubeSat as compared to Orion and SLS, and 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 you know we we and this tails right into what Pam was just talking about, our launch date has been sliding month to month to month because we're completely dependent on the rocket and when it goes up. So we're just like, hey, whatever happens, you guys got to deal with it. We can't say, please launch on the 23rd, not the 22nd. They're not going to listen to us because understandably, we're just a little, we're just a hitchhiker. We're just, we're just like getting this opportunity. So, so it makes planning that Pam talks about very uh, challenging because we're constantly iterating how our path through space is going to change on a given launch date because the universe keeps spinning around everything all the positions of everything keep changing so when we launch when we get to the moon the path we have to take to get there is all a function of launch date and and it's um it's just a reality of a cubesat you know and we, we don't have a dedicated rocket sending just us up we're we're part of a big system so i guess an important another challenge associated with these low-cost missions is is this um this this particular um item I just mentioned. It, you know, this gets into the whole lessons learned area. If you want to talk about that, I'd be very happy to. Um, in, ter <laughs> in terms of what uh, a, a drifting launch date, but also in terms of what really would make sense as an architecture um, for, you know, really small compact spacecraft, of which there could be many because they're relatively inexpensive to, to build once you get the model right um, and the relatively low mass and low volume. Um, really an architecture which could actually deliver a bunch of these to your target, which means you could have a smaller propulsion system, there'd be, they would be, less time would be involved, you could spend more time at the target, would be a nice architecture con consider to consider in the future. And I think that this will actually happen when we get uh, commercial launch services start to be viable for the moon. And then, of course, you basically have an agreed upon, you manifest and have an agreed upon launch date. With some backups, but not you know we've had delayed launch dates for, for a long time now, and that means we're completely redoing the trajectory analysis and you know planning for when things are going to happen, including in-flight calibration. 
if you want me to talk more about lessons learned, I'll be happy to do it, or we can talk about something else. <laughs> well, um, let me. Uh... I guess in a in a similar vein, what I, what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to toss to each of you um, and and just sort of capture this moment. Um, and and you can of course fit some lessons learned in in there as as you see fit. But really, what I'm trying to capture um, is more of an emotion. Um, yeah, like you you've mentioned all the work that's gone into the Lunar Ice Cube mission so far. And Pamela, you you laid out years worth of work ahead of time. Um, after the after the mission, um, just just there's a lot of there's a lot of follow up to this. Um, you mentioned that the the, the launches are is is getting delayed, but but it, I mean it's it's very close. We're not talking about something that's years away anymore, right? We're talking about something uh, that's months away. It's it's very very close. Um, so so with that in mind, what I wanted to capture was just sitting in this moment ahead of launch, the anticipation. Of course, you have some work to do with with think, coming up with trajectories, but just trying to capture. Um, how you're feeling in this in this moment, just ahead of launch, um, uh, knowing all of the work that's gone into it, where you're sitting right now, and what's ahead of you, um, just capturing all of that. How you feeling? Well, you know, I think it's about time. I mean, I, I say this as somebody who I hate to say this because it's going to date me, but I actually met Werner von Braun. Um, I've known many wow. of the astronauts, and I feel strongly. I, I, that we should be back on the moon and have permanent bases on the moon and be exploring the surface and using it as a jumping off point to a lot of other interesting exploration of the solar system. So I'm hoping that this is like just the beginning uh, by you know doing this kind of reconnaissance of something that will be much more involved and involve real, you know, really um, human exploration beyond um, the Earth and open up a whole new chapter, certainly in this country's history, but basically in terms of where humans are and where we can go in space. And I've had this desire since I was very young, you know, almost as far back as I can actually remember. Um, I wanted to, you know, be a space explorer from very early in my life. So it's very important, and I'm happy to be involved in, a, in part of the process to try to make this happen. That's how I feel. Very good. Yeah. And you are truly exploring space. Cliff, over to you. Same question. All the work that's gone into it. You've solved a number of engineering challenges. I'm sure you're going to be staying tuned to see how everything works uh, for the months ahead, capturing this this moment ahead of launch. How are you feeling? Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to first uh, echo what Pam said. I think it's incredibly important that we we, we figure out how, how we can get to the moon and have a sustained presence there for purposes of, of leaping outward to other greater things. I think that's incredibly exciting. Um, for me personally, I've worked on this instrument for over five years, I think at least six years now. I think we all have at least six years in on this. And, and um, another lessons learned, you know, you need more time than they think it's going to take. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> here we are. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, my engineering uh, thought process focuses on on the, the the design of the instrument, the spacecraft, the the risk posture that is is typically associated with the CubeSat type development effort. You know, this isn't James Webb Space Telescope. There's there's no redundancy here. You know, one little thing goes wrong and we could have a serious problem. But you know, we did our best to avoid those situations with picking out high reliability parts and different good systems and margins and things. But but I personally am so looking forward to it being turned on in space to do one of these in situ observations that we're talking about and knowing that it's working and that we, we, we the, the various risks that exist have been beaten down. It's, it's just like what, what James Webb went through when they had over 300 separate deployments and any one of them went bad, the mission's a goner. You know, and they, they thankfully got through all those deployments and everything's great. So that was a class A mission, full-blown redundancy, crazy amounts of money, you know, per, you know, just to get this thing up there with lots and lots of high reliability stuff. This is a CubeSat. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. This is about as inexpensive as you can get to put science up into orbit and or look at the moon. And we're leaving the Earth. We're going out to the moon. You know, that, that I don't think that's happened. We haven't sent a CubeSat out to the moon yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pam, but I think this no, is the first. Right? Yeah. Right. So this is a first. This is the first, yeah. Well, it, it isn't the first deep space CubeSat. That was Marco. But it will, be, it will be the first CubeSat to the moon. Yes. 
Yeah, and and the moon is a harsh environment, and there's radiation, there's thermal. So so we're very so I'm, I just want to see it succeed, like you, you already um, implied. But I, I want to make sure that the things that we worked on um, work and work reliably. And once I uh, have a feeling that they are, I will um, I'll sleep better. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I I appreciate talking to you both. What I what I appreciated about um uh what I captured in your answers is is of course you're looking forward to this mission, but it seems like you both have a sense of contributing to something grander, contributing to a goal that you both strongly believe in is this continued presence, um because you both you know obviously see see the value. Uh, in what's to come. And, and that's, I think that's a very important takeaway. So I think on that note, I think that is the perfect place to wrap up our discussion. I learned so much about Lunar Ice Cube and I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm just as excited <laughs> as you are. Of course, you guys put in, put in so much more work and have, are intimately closer to this mission, but, but I am truly excited for you and for your teams. Uh, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to come from, from this mission. And, and, um, uh, thank you for both of you for coming on the podcast and helping me to, to, to explain it and to our listeners as well. Um, wishing you the best of luck. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Great opportunity. It's been, a, it's been an honor working on this and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I got really excited talking about the Lunar Ice Cube mission with uh, Dr. Pamela Clark and Cliff Brambora today. It was awesome. I hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as I did, and uh, you're excited for the Artemis mission. Of course, there's a lot more to it. That was just one piece. Uh, check out nasa.gov Artemis to learn more about the whole effort. We've been talking a lot about different aspects of uh, Art the Artemis program and the Artemis One mission, especially recently. You can check out our uh, full collection of episodes at nasa.gov slash podcasts. We have a collection called the Artemis Missions, Artemis uh, Episodes, and you can click on there and listen to any of those in no particular order to check those out. There's also some great other NASA podcasts we have across the agency that you can check out there, nasa.gov slash podcasts. If you want to talk to us, ask a, ask us a question. Just make sure to uh, talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages. Uh, you can use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or submit an idea. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded March 14th, 2022. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, Laura Rashawn, and Jaden Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Dr. Pamela Clark and Cliff Brambora for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.